so this is the uh, fourth and um, kind of final week of the four themes of Advent. Um, we are looking, last week we looked at joy, and we looked at the Magnificate of Mary, uh, her song where she said her soul rejoices and magnifies the Lord. Um, and so talked about how joy comes from the Lord, and talked about how when we magnify the Lord, our joy increases. Uh, and didn't just leave us there because sometimes it may be, how do we do that? How do we magnify the Lord? Do I get a large print Bible or what does that mean? Um, but we said that, or I said that magnifying the Lord is focusing on who he is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. Um, this dwelling on the promises of God, dwelling on the activity of God, what he has done in your life, how he has changed and transformed and uh, how he's answered prayer. Um, maybe not the way you had hoped, but how he has changed you and taught you and um, made you more like Christ. And so we magnify the Lord when we declare those things, when we think on those things, when we sing those things. Uh, and as we magnify the Lord, our joy increases. So today, uh, the final week of Advent, after looking at hope, peace, and joy, we turn to love, the love of Advent. Um, and so we've looked at uh, some different songs uh, surrounding the Advent um, in Scripture, surrounding the birth of Christ. Um, today, we're, instead of looking at one of the traditional kind of Luke songs that we find, <clears throat> I want to travel back hundreds of years from the birth of Christ to the time of Isaiah. Um, that's where our call to worship was from. It's where our text for this morning is from. Uh, we'll be in Isaiah 52, and we'll end uh, at the end of 53. Uh, but this is a prophecy or song uh, about the Son of God found in Isaiah. There are four servant songs in Isaiah, and this is known as the suffering servant song we'll look at this morning. And so we've looked at these four songs through the four weeks of Advent, and then on Christmas Eve Eve, we'll look at the angel's song uh, on the night that Jesus was born. Uh, it's just uh, like two lines long, um, but it's, uh, I think, just a great summary of uh, you know, often people will boil down their Christian life to love God, love people, uh, the two greatest commandments. Um, I think we see in the angel's song, um, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Um, it's kind of a summary of all these other songs we've looked at as well. And so we'll highlight that song Friday night. Uh, but this morning we look at the suffering servant song, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13. <clears throat> Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root of, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we have uh, quite a lot of text there about this suffering servant. Um, some things, I think, if we are familiar with who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we see uh, pretty clearly uh, that this is pointing to the Messiah and to what Jesus did uh, for us in bearing our iniquities, bearing our shame, and taking our punishment. <clears throat> a little bit of context here. Isaiah was a prophet during the 740s BC, and his name means Yahweh is salvation or the Lord saves. Most of the book of Isaiah, um, it begins by declaring that this is a vision that the Lord gave to Isaiah, and so this is what um, God has shown him, and he is declaring to the people of God. Most of it centers kind of on judgment that God's going to bring against wickedness and against sin and disobedience, uh, but it also has these moments of pointing us to redemption and salvation in this Messiah that is to come. Um, declaring what he will do. Uh, and again, it's this prophetic past tense, which we saw last week, uh, where it says he has done these things, he has already done these things, uh, and yet they had not unfolded in history yet. And so, uh, despite most of the book being about judgment and discipline, it also points us to redemption, a new heaven, a new earth, in line with the kingdom of God uh, that he has promised. Uh, this passage here is the fourth of the servant songs. Uh, they all point us to Jesus. And the descriptions of this servant's role, we can see in this passage, um, the power in redemption, uh, it's pretty clear that they're talking about the Messiah here, Jesus, as the Christ, or the Messiah, the one who would save. Um, and so I think in this servant song, we're told uh, about the suffering servant, and in this suffering, I think, is just a very rich picture uh, of love, and the love of Christ towards us. And so we'll look at the love of Advent um, through the suffering of Christ. Uh, I just want to take a look, a quick look, at three aspects uh, of love that we see here in Isaiah, embodied by Jesus, which we can also pursue uh, as we seek to be like Jesus and to love like Jesus and be more like him. Uh, first, love is humble. Love is humble. Uh, look at the way Jesus is described in this passage. He had no form uh, of majesty no beauty, he's marred, he's despised, rejected. He's called the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Uh, he's described as oppressed, afflicted, pierced, crushed, cut off, stricken. 
these are not uh, pleasurable things. These are not uh, rewards. These are not good things to uh, experience. And so this, uh, you would think, is why is that humility? Well, consider who this is. We're talking about the Son of God, the God of all creation, the God of uh, the universe as far as we can see and beyond, the God who created uh, us, um, the God who created the world. It's the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son of God, Christ, fully God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit of whom the Bible says, we read earlier, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And it also says he is one with the Father. Jesus declared himself one with the Father. The Bible says that Jesus is full of glory, full of glory of the Father. As I mentioned, he is creator. Jesus is omnipotent and omniscient. Jesus declared of himself, all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. It is his. And yet in love, he submitted himself to the humiliation described here in Isaiah 53. Now, the very incarnation itself is humbling in light of who Jesus is. Um, that the God of all creation would choose to take on flesh. Um, and I was reading, I think it's even in the little Who is Jesus book that we give to uh, you're all welcome to take one. We give them to visitors um, when they come and uh, check out Missio Day. It's a little book called Who's Jesus? And there's a part on the incarnation uh, where the author is talking about a conversation he had with somebody, and he realized in this kind of aha moment um, that Jesus is still in human form. He's still in flesh. He is uh, eternal. When he took on flesh and became man, he eternally took on flesh. And how mind-blowing it is that the God of all creation, as I was um, doing research for my, uh, one of my side hustles um, for another pastor, uh, and looking at, they have these animations that show how huge the universe is, right? And it, so you can start like, okay, start in Rose Hill, zoom out, Texas, the U.S., you know, uh, the globe, and then it's like the solar system, and beyond, the galaxy, and it's just crazy how huge the universe is that we can see. And we don't know what's beyond what we can't see. And it's so immense and so vast. And God is over all of that. And how humbling it is to think that the God over all of that chose to eternally take on flesh in the form of man. He was seated, right? He was in heaven. He was in the form of God. And yet he chose to take on flesh. So the fact that he even became man is a self-humbling that Jesus experienced. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, this passage is referred to as, as a passage of, of emptying um, because it says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So taking on humanity was a lowering of himself to begin with, considering Christ was in the form of God, but he didn't just take on hum humanity at the highest level either, right? He could have come to earth as uh, some, you know, like you think about Superman who came to earth and he's like, I'm, I look like you, but I ain't like you, right? Like uh, I came in power. 
Uh, he didn't come in power. He didn't come in wealth. He didn't come uh, as a king or a warrior. He came as a baby, humbling himself to the point of helplessness in the form of an infant. He dropped himself into a low-income family as a helpless, defenseless baby. And from this ultra-humbling at his birth to the ultra-humbling obedience of experiencing death, as we read in Philippians, that he didn't just submit himself to humanity, life as a human, but he also submitted himself to death as a human and an excruciating, humiliating death that he didn't deserve as a human. The entire human experience for Jesus is a setting aside, an emptying of self, so that he could dwell among us, experience our temptations, become intimately familiar with humanity, but not just that, right? But this is true love. When we truly love someone, we're willing to take the hits for them. We're willing to, uh, to take the shots, to take the hits, to take the fall. We're willing to risk embarrassment or blame or ridicule. This is the humility of love. And love is willingly humble because love is selfless. Why did Jesus endure this suffering um, and allow himself to be despised? Why did Jesus empty himself in the first place to become fully man? Because love is selfless. This is point two, love is selfless. The humiliation that Jesus endured was not a matter of self-deprecation or false humility. Uh, I'm sorry, or false modesty, right? Uh, I was in fourth grade, I can remember, and this is to my shame uh, that I share this story, uh, I can remember walking around the playground of John Baker Elementary School during recess by myself. I would choose to walk by myself, and I would hang my head kind of low, and I would look as sad as I could and just walk around. Uh, sounds weird, right? Uh, well, there was a strategy to this, because I figured, that when I figured out when I did this that girls would come up to me and say, what's wrong? What's, what's wrong? Why are you sad? And so I was getting attention from these girls that I was never going to go up to and just start a conversation with. But if I could make myself look pitiful and pathetic, they would come and check on me. And then I would get this attention that I thought I needed from them. Uh, it's pretty messed up, right? And so while I had this look of suffering or struggling with something difficult, I wasn't. Um, like some big burden had been placed on me. I was feigning hardship or suffering in order to get attention. This is not the love of Jesus. This is not what Jesus did when he humbled himself and submitted himself to torture and pain and ridicule. Uh, he was not just seeking attention, right? Uh, he, his humility is not a woe is me act. His humility, his suffering, his shame was all endured to make our salvation possible. He was despised, stricken, rejected, acquainted with grief and sorrow because he has borne our griefs, our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' love for us is not a, an unhealthy, unhealthy obsession for which he was suffering needlessly with a misplaced martyr complex. It's not uh, an agenda that he created in his own mind that wasn't really necessary. Um, for example, consider John Hinckley Jr., who tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan in 1981, and he claimed it was his an attempt to impress actress Jodie Foster. Uh, Jodie Foster did not ask John Hinckley to do this. Uh, she did not need John Hinckley to kill the president. Uh, he has since, uh, I think, gotten better mentally and apologized for these things, uh, sorrowful for his actions. But this was a mentally unwell man acting out of obsession. Jesus was not a mentally unstable young man acting out of some deranged fantasy of I have to 
uh, humble myself and submit myself to this to save the world. No, that was not the case. It was needed, right? It was necessary. His love is, is in action for others. He put the good of sinners like you and me before his own comfort and well-being. I almost always include this aspect of love when I officiate a wedding. Uh, I characterize, characterize true love as putting another person's good above your own and, and fighting for that good, pursuing that good. Real love pursues the good of others, not just our own. If you want to love like Jesus, love selflessly without regard to how you might benefit from it. Simply elevate someone else's good above your own and do what is in your power to champion that good. What is it all pointing to, though? What are the hum humility and selflessness working for? Uh, as I mentioned, it wasn't just Jesus coming up with some crazy plan, like, I have to do this, when he didn't really have to do this. He had to do these things. Because the goal of his humility, the goal of his selflessness, what he's working for is redemption. Love is redemptive. This is our final point. Love is redemptive. I mentioned earlier that false humility and false selflessness, they're not necessary, right? They're not needed. We, we create a scenario where we, we think we have to act that way to achieve some kind of goal in our head. It's usually self-serving if it's false, but there's no need for them, no real urgency. But in Jesus, the suffering he endured and the selflessness that he embodied were very necessary in order to save sinners. I noted during the last point that Jesus bore our griefs, our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, which only matters because our sorrows and transgressions and iniquities leave us condemned, guilty, guilty of sinning against a holy God and deserving of eternal punishment. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. Our disobedience, our sin, it pays out in death. That's what it, the wages are. That's what we've earned for ourselves. But God, God in his love for us sent Jesus on a mission trip to save us. And Jesus, out of his love for us, humbled himself, willingly went on that mission trip, came to earth to save us. Redemption is more than a vague good or a bettering of our situation. Redemption specifically, it takes what is broken and headed for the gallows and stands in its place. Verse 5 here in Isaiah 53 says, The chastisement on Jesus brought us peace, and that by his wounds we are healed. That part of Jesus' suffering was uh, having our iniquities not just taken away. He didn't just get rid of our iniquities. He took them on himself. See, these sins still had to be paid for, right? There's still a debt owed to God. There's still sin that has to be punished. If God is to remain righteous and just, he has to punish the sin that we've committed. And so it wasn't just done away with, it was placed on Christ. Jesus bore them. He made intercession for us. He stood in our place as a substitute. He made atonement for our sin that we would be counted as righteous. And because he's fully God, he didn't let sin and death have the last word. We read here in Isaiah that he was crushed, but it did not have the last word. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. Uh, I came across this story. Um, I don't know, the, the Facebook algorithms took a shot on me and started sending these like weird stories from history, like photographs 
And I was like, I'm in on that. And so I subscribed to one of those, and now I get a lot of them. Uh, and there's a lot of great sermon illustrations in them, I think. And this one may not be great, so I shouldn't have said that. But I was reading about the, the ship called the Endurance, which in 1915 set out to uh, an expedition of Antarctica. And so the, the goal was to, to go to Antarctica and get to a certain point and then explore it, and et cetera, et cetera. And so as they're going, and they knew, like, we may not make it back. This is going to be really tough. They're cutting through the ice to a point. Uh, eventually, they get stuck in the ice, and they're stuck in the ice for a long time. They're, like, living on this ship surrounded by ice for, like, two months. Uh, and the ice begins to crush. It starts to kind of come in on the boat and crush it. And as it's breaking it, they start to realize, like, okay, it's going to come in. It's breaking the boat. It's ice now, but as the seasons begin to change, we're in a place where this ice is going to start to melt. It's just going to sink our boat. And so they're like, okay, we've got to get off the boat and uh, try to survive. And so they change their, their plans, and there's all these kind of little details about boats heading in the wrong direction and marching around and all this kind of stuff. Um, but the last word on this story of the endurance, which a great name for this boat in this story, is that, yes, the boat sank. It was crushed and it sank. But every one of those men survived. Death did not have the last word. Being crushed did not have the last word. They all made it out. And then something really cool, I think earlier this year in March, uh, 106 years after the sinking of the endurance, they found it. It's like mostly intact. They found it at the bottom of the ocean. So it's a pretty cool uh, story. But the point is that they were crushed, but death did not have the last word, right? Crushed, but not destroyed. And so as Christ takes on our punishment, submits himself to being stricken, uh, to being marred to the point of being unrecognizable, we read in, in Isaiah 52, to take on our punishment and pay the price for our sin and surrender and submit himself, humble himself to death, but didn't stay dead. He rose again. He defeated the power of sin and death. So he becomes the one who takes on the payment for sin and then trumps that, right? It's not like he had an, a debt unpaid and then skipped out on it. He paid the debt. He made good on it and then came back to life. It was like, ah, like I paid your debt. You got nothing against me. And I trumped that and became alive again so that we might not just be forgiven and spend eternity with God, but have new life in Christ, right? We no longer have this guilty verdict if we're in Christ. God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Jesus. Just as Jesus took on our iniquity and our sin, we take on his righteousness. And so he pays the price, goes to the grave, rises again from the grave, offers us new life. And no matter what we've done, that was so terrible in our minds and in actuality, and the sins we have yet to commit, Jesus saw them, he went to the cross, he bore them, he paid the price for them, and then he rose from the grave to trump the power of them in our lives. We're not simply at peace on our own because Jesus has uh, taken our sin off of us, but we are at peace with God because he has paid the price that God demands for sin. This is our greatest need. We're co-heirs with Jesus now. We're, we, we share in the full inheritance of God because we are co-heirs with Jesus. 
This greatest need that we have could only have been met in Christ. Why did Jesus have to take on humanity? Because the curse, the condemnation and sin was earned and placed on a human. It was earned by humans. It had to be paid by humans. And so Jesus had to take on flesh so that the punishment was uh, paid by a human. But only someone who was fully God and fully man could have lived the perfect, sinless human life and died the sacrificial death needed to atone for our sin. If the person who took the punishment had any sin of their own, they wouldn't have had anything to pay for us. And so Christ, in his perfection and his sinlessness, having no sin of his own, was able to pay for sinners like you and me. Now, we cannot live sinlessly like Jesus, but we can point people to their best good in him. When we seek to love people like Jesus, we don't just want to make their life more comfortable more enjoyable, right? We're not just looking to remove the suffering of the circumstances of this world, but we're hopefully pursuing their eternal best interest. And their eternal best interest is only found in surrendering their lives to Jesus by faith. And it's because of Jesus' great love towards sinners and the fact that he somehow set aside some of what it meant to be Christ in order to take on flesh that we can be saved at all. This is the love of Advent, the love of the Incarnation, the miraculous, selfless, humble love of the Incarnation, the powerful love of Advent that can be realized in your life today and every day by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for... Uh, for bearing our sin, our shame, for being crushed, for our iniquities, and yet not letting sin or death have the last word, Jesus. You paid the price. You paid the debt. So that by faith, your righteousness is placed on us. And then you rose from the grave so that we might have eternal life in you as well. It's the beautiful picture of the gospel that doesn't just take us from negative to neutral. It doesn't just cancel the debt and say, you're back to square one. Here's a blank canvas. See what you can do now. No, it takes our sin, pays the debt, and gives us the righteousness of Christ, makes us heirs to the fortune of God for all eternity, taking us from negative the depths of sin and sorrow and exalting us to the place where we will spend eternity in fellowship with you. God, at Christmas time, that this is what we celebrate, the unfolding of this promise to the one who would bear our sins, the one who would bear our shame, the one who would take on chastisement, humbling himself to a torturous death that he did not deserve that he was born in the flesh, fully God, but fully man. This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is the wonder of Christmas. This is your love towards us in the Advent. We thank you, God. We praise you for this great love. We pray that we would be people who don't just, again, walk in this love, but extend this love to others to try to point people to their greatest need and the greatest answer in you. 
And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen.